in the 1960s, there was a comic book publisher that started to see a little bit of success, in part because they wrote relatable stories about real personal issues, about cultural issues. They created characters that were believable and relatable. They were flawed, but had good intentions, I think kind of like most people in real life. And because of this, their sales soared and skyrocketed. They, they rode that wave for several decades. Eventually, though, they were bought by a businessman who didn't really know much about running a comic book company. And that, combined with a slumping market, resulted in the near collapse of this once vibrant company. In order to stay afloat, they had to let go staff. They cut corners. They even filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in 1996. It was a pretty bad deal. And in fact, just to stay afloat, to keep the doors open, they sold off their movie rights to most of their characters to different studios just to get some cash flow. And then something unexpected happened. These, these studios started to make these heroes, these, these movies about superheroes. And these movies made money. People wanted to see their favorite comic book characters up on the silver screen. And, and so this company got the bright idea that maybe we should make one of these movies. And so they got one of their obscure characters. They, they cobbled together what little money they had in reserves, and they made a film. And that movie turned a profit. So they did it again. And that movie turned a profit. And they just repeated that success again and again. And today, Marvel Comics is responsible for some of the highest earning films in the history of Hollywood. And to date, they have grossed $10.8 billion. They're doing pretty good. And they're not real concerned about comic books so much anymore. They're better than they've ever been. And you may notice that they would never have found that success if not for a problem that cropped up in their business. Problems are not good things, but a lot of times our problems can prepare us for good things. That's kind of the theme that's been running throughout this series we've been in for a couple of weeks now. The series is called The Hidden Potential of Problems. Problems stink, right? I, I don't want problems. I don't wish problems upon you. They're hard. They're uncomfortable. They push us. They stretch us. I wish we didn't have problems, but the fact is we do. However, what we find is when we trust God with our problems, they have this hidden potential to produce something that is good in us and through us. We've been seeing that over the last few weeks, and to help us understand in more detail what this looks like, how this principle plays out, we've been looking at the story of a man named Joseph. Joseph is a guy whose life was filled with problem after problem after problem, and yet God uses all of these bad circumstances to produce something ultimately good both in him and through him. And we're going to continue looking at his story this morning as we talk about preparation and the way that God sometimes uses problems to prepare us for good things. So if you've got your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to open the book of Genesis chapter 41 and follow along this morning as Genesis chapter 41. If you don't have your Bible, don't sweat it. You can follow along on the screen behind, or better yet, download the Uversion app on your mobile device. It's free. You know, it doesn't take up a lot of space. It's a good thing to have with you at all times. Genesis 41 is we're going to be, uh, no matter what avenue you choose to go now. So if this is your first time with us, if you're just jumping into this series, don't worry about being lost. You've actually picked the perfect Sunday to jump in. Because this is where all the loose ends start to come together. This is where we start to turn the corner and we start to see how God's using these different problems to produce something good through Joseph. So let's take a look at his story and see how problems serve to prepare him in a special way. So the story begins with Joseph in prison. That's where we left him last. He's there because he's falsely accused of a crime. 
And he does so well at administrating things. The warden takes notice of Joseph and puts him in charge of a lot of the day-to-day activities of the prison. If you're going to be a prisoner, this is the job that you want to have. And so things go pretty well for Joseph for a while. And then two guys come to prison, both of them from the, king, from the, the palace of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. One of them is a baker, the other is a cupbearer, meaning, meaning kind of a royal taste tester. And these guys come to prison, and they start having just weird, bizarre dreams that they can't understand. And just as a reminder, dreams in this culture, they weren't understood to be the result of, like, eating Mexican food too late at night or anything. Like, these were the results of God giving you a message. That's how they interpreted dreams. Now, think about how frustrating that would be to have this this message from God right there at your fingertips— but you can't understand it or make heads or tails of it. That'd be like if somebody texted you about an emergency, but they used only emojis. You know, what is that smiley face crying for? What is that pile of poo doing there? We don't know. You know, there's no context. It would be so confusing. If you follow emojis, you know I'm not making that up. All right, so that's what these guys are going through. They want to understand this dream. Luckily for them, Joseph has the ability to interpret dreams. And so the first guy, he tells Joseph, this is what I dreamed. And Joseph says, good news. That means in three days, you're going to be restored to the palace. And you're going to work for Pharaoh once again. Well, the other guy overhears this and goes, hey, that's great news. Do me next. Do me. And so he tells Joseph his dream. And Joseph goes, sorry, man, but your dream means that in three days, you're going to be executed. Not exactly what you want to hear, right? On three days, both of these things come to pass. The baker is executed. The cupbearer is restored back to his position to work for Pharaoh once again. And as he leaves the prison, you can almost see Joseph shouting through the bars, don't forget about me. Tell the king about me. Tell him about my predicament. And the cupbearer says, you got it, man. I will never forget you. And then he gets into the palace and he totally forgets about Joseph. And Joseph spends the next two years in prison. Like I said, Problem after problem after problem. But then the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he starts to have some weird dreams that he can't understand. And nobody in the palace can interpret these. And that's when the cupbearer says, wait a minute, I met a guy in prison that can interpret dreams. And the king actually brings Joseph before him. Only in the Bible, folks, would a line like that ever fly. So Joseph is now in front of the Pharaoh, and that's where our story picks up. Genesis chapter 41, look at verse 14. It goes like this. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. And we're going to pause there for just a second, because there's this little detail that I just want to point out, because it's neat. I just want everybody to appreciate the Bible a little bit for a second here. Every time something eventful happens in Joseph's life, his clothes are involved somehow. And you think about the very first time we met him, he was 17 years old, way back in Genesis 37. He had this beautifully ornate robe. And what happens? His brothers tear that robe away. They sell Joseph into slavery, which gets this whole story rolling. And then they give that robe back to his father, say, a wild animal ate your son. His clothes were involved in that situation. We fast forward a little bit to Genesis 39, what we heard last week, if you were with us. Joseph was sold to go work on the household of a man named Potiphar. And he's doing an awesome job. He has a great role in that household. And then Potiphar's wife says, man, you're good looking. I would love it if you come to bed with me. And Joseph tries to flee and get away, but she grabs a hold of his cloak and tears it off of him. 
And so she has this cloak in her hands. That's what lands Joseph in prison and starts setting the story further in motion. And here, once again, Joseph is standing in this room. He's shaved, and we're told this small, seemingly insignificant detail that his clothes have changed. That's not a seemingly insignificant detail. These stories are, are not just cobbled together haphazardly. There is artistry and intention on every single page of this book. The Bible's a pretty cool thing. It's worth studying. What we're seeing here is that something significant is about to happen in Joseph's life. This is a literary red flag. So let's see what this thing is. Look at verse 15. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it. But I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. What a humble answer. You know, you wouldn't really expect somebody in his position to say, you know, I don't really think I can do the thing you're asking, but, but God can. This is not the kind of answer that Joseph would have given just a few chapters ago. Do you remember him when we met him back in chapter 37? He's a 17-year-old kid. He's a little cocky. He's a little arrogant. He enjoys being elevated and distinguished above other people, including his brothers. But here, that's not the kid that we see anymore. What we see is somebody who's willing to give credit where credit is due. Joseph has the opportunity to score some serious points with Pharaoh, but he doesn't take it. Instead, he's content to make sure that God is honored and God is recognized. There's a change that's taken place in his character, and you want to know what produced that change in Joseph's life? Problems. Problems shaped him and prepared him for this moment. So Pharaoh tells Joseph his, his dreams, and they are some weird dreams, guys. There's two of them. One of them is about cows. You got seven healthy cows. They're, they're sleek, they're fat, they look like they're ready for slaughter. Just prime example of what beef should look like. And then you got seven sickly cows. They're like gaunt, sickly, they've they're got the mange, they're like zombie cows. And they eat the seven healthy cows, which is not what cows are supposed to do. If you know anything about cattle, these are cannibalistic cows. They eat the healthy cows, but they don't look any different afterwards. They don't look healthier, they don't look full. It's just weird. Like sociopaths have that kind of dream. It's an odd dream. The other dream is about wheat. There's seven good heads of wheat, there's seven bad heads of wheat. And the seven bad heads eat the seven good heads, they don't look any different afterwards. So Pharaoh tells Joseph these dreams, and Joseph says, you are weird, man. No, that's not what he says. What he says is, here's what God wants you to know. Egypt is going to have seven years of bounty and abundance. You guys are going to be doing great for seven years. And then immediately after that, Egypt is going to suffer a famine so severe that it will consume and wipe away even the memory of those seven good years. Hard times are coming. Now, Joseph has done exactly what he was asked to do. He he interpreted the dream, and that's where he could have stopped. But he goes a little bit further, and he starts telling Pharaoh what steps he needs to take. This is a pretty bold move, because remember, Joseph is in prison, and Pharaoh is the king of Egypt. When was the last time you ever saw a prisoner try to tell the president what he needs to do? So this is a bold thing, but here's what Pharaoh says. Genesis 41, verse 33. It says, And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. 
This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. Now, if you didn't follow that game plan, don't sweat it. The details aren't really important. What's important to notice here is that Joseph already has a pretty well fleshed out plan of what they need to do next. And the whole thing is to illustrate Joseph has a mind for administration. He is very capable at organizing and running not just a nation, but we've seen this a prison and a household as well. Do you remember Joseph's story? I mean, he's been brought through this ringer of problems. First, he was in the household of Potiphar, and he was put in charge of the whole estate. He ran the household. He ran the fields. His administrative skills were being sharpened. And then he was moved to a prison. Pretty big problem in his life, but God continued to use him and to sharpen his skills. He was put in charge of all the prisoners, the daily activities, and now we find that his administrative acumen has been improved and sharpened and, and, and prepared. That's the word I wanted, prepared for this very moment. God had a task that he's been preparing Joseph for throughout his entire journey. And how has he been preparing Joseph? Through problems. These problems have a hidden potential, and we see all the pieces starting to come together here. Joseph's story, in a lot of ways, reminds me of a girl named Jennifer. Jennifer was a high school student. She bounced in and out of homeless shelters pretty much all through junior high and high school. She lived outside of, of Cincinnati, no, Cleveland, Ohio. Sorry, Cleveland. And so Jennifer was just trying to get through school, and I honestly, I don't know how she did it, gang, but somehow, by the grace of God, this girl not only graduated from high school, but graduated with grades good enough to get into college. And I think about it, she didn't have a home to go to most nights. She was doing her work at bus stops, and she, she worked hard to get there. But now that she was in school, she had to somehow pay for it. She didn't have a whole lot of cash reserves. And so she worked hard every single day to pay for her education. And eventually, the work and the hours, it just got to be too much. And so after two years, she was forced to drop out of school. And if that had been the end of the story, that would have been kind of sad. But Jennifer continued to work hard, and for five years she worked and saved and worked and saved until eventually she went back to school. She graduated with her bachelor's in communication, and then she even went and did master's work at the University of Southern California. I mean, this girl is an inspiration. And what makes her story so inspiring are the problems and the obstacles she had to overcome to get to where she is. And those problems and those obstacles prepared her for the work that she's now doing today. Jessica started a non-for-profit organization that's dedicated to helping impoverished teens break that cycle of poverty and better themselves. She helps them prepare college applications in a way that's appealing to universities. She helps them prepare financially viable game plans for how they're going to make their way through school. She's using her experience, guys. Her problems have shaped her and prepared her to do the good work that she's now doing in this world, the service that she's providing to countless young people, and the way that she's mentoring people and helping them deal with and cope with the problems of their life. She's been shaped and prepared for this work. That's Joseph's story. Throughout his life, these problems have prepared him to do the work that God has put in front of him. God is going to save countless lives through Joseph and the organization of Egypt's agricultural system. And amongst those people that are going to be saved are Joseph's family, those same people that sold him into slavery. And we'll hear that story next week, so make sure you come back next week and finish this story well. But what we need to understand is that Joseph is not really that unique here. Okay, Our stories are used by God in much the same way. He uses our problems to prepare us for his purposes. So how does he do that? How does God use our problems to prepare us for his purposes? Well, 
we've been saying for weeks now, okay? Two weeks ago, last week, this week, we'll hear it again next week. God has a dream for your life. And it's not so much a dream about where you will live, about what kind of house you'll have, or what kind of car you'll drive, or any of the things that we oftentimes worry or concern ourselves about. God's dream for our life is that we would look like Jesus Christ in the way that we act, the way that we think, and the way that we love, and the way that we relate with one another. If you want to put a Bible term on it, his dream is sanctification. It's this process of being more and more like Christ in our lives. That's his dream for us. You take Joseph, for instance. Look how God worked in Joseph's life. At 17, he's just this cocky kid, a little arrogant, enjoys being elevated above people, but through his problems, God shapes him and molds him and forms him and to somebody so humble, he won't even take credit and he won't take the opportunity to get himself out of prison because God deserves his honor and his due. That's not something that just happens by itself. That's God working in this guy to form him into a more Christ-like person. And God does the same thing in our lives too. You think about your problems in life. What have you learned from them? How have they shaped you? Well, on the one hand, they can make us angry and they can make us bitter or... They can accomplish something good and constructive. A lot of times they make us more compassionate. They make us more empathetic. They make us more understanding. Because when we see somebody who's gone through a struggle that we ourselves have been through, our heart goes out to that person. We mourn with that person. We celebrate that person when they overcome. We become more celebratory, more, more empathetic, more compassionate people through our problems. Those are Christ-like characteristics that God is forming in us. God uses problems to shape who we are on the inside. But God's dream is not confined just to who we are on the inside. He wants us to look like Christ inside, yes, but he also wants us to look like Christ on the outside through what we do for our actions and our activities to resemble Christ as well. You think about Joseph again. Here's a guy who's been sharpened and prepared throughout his life for this moment where he's going to save many lives. He was put on earth for this purpose. And God sharpened him and prepared him through problems. And so many times, God does the same thing in our lives. He prepares us for the good works he has in store for us. If you want to look at a New Testament passage that just captures this so succinctly, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2 real quick. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. If you can't get there quick, that's okay. Just listen up. Ephesians 2, verse 8. It goes like this. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This is a, a short passage that reminds us about the beauty of the gospel, that this gift of salvation is exactly that, it's a gift. It's not something that we've earned, it's not something we deserve, it's not something we've worked for, it's not something we merit, it's something that God has given us. Jesus Christ came into this world, he set foot on this planet, and he lived a sinless life. And yet he died as if he were guilty. And you think about why would somebody do that? Well, he did that so that those of us who are actually guilty would be viewed as God as if we had lived a sinless life. It's the great switcheroo. Jesus took our place and he gave us innocence and he gave us righteousness and he gave us a fresh start and he gave us a new beginning and we didn't do a single thing to earn any of it. That's the good news of the gospel. But so many times, that's where we in the church sometimes stop thinking and stop reading. You know, Jesus saved me, and now I'm good. But look at the very next verse in this passage. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. There's a reason why God has gone to so much work to save us. For we are God's handiwork, 
created in Christ Jesus. Why? To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God is not just concerned about who we are on the inside and about our character. He's also concerned about who we are on the outside and what we do with this new life he's given us. In some ways, it's kind of like landscaping. I watch a lot of bizarre TV shows. I don't watch anything normal. So I was watching the show on landscaping one time, and these people did so much work just to make their yards beautiful, just beautifully manicured lawns, immaculate shrubs, topiaries, not a branch out of place. Like it was stuff right out of a painting. It was incredible. So why do you think they went to so much trouble to get their yards looking so beautiful? Do you think it's so they could put it behind a fence and let nobody see it? So all the beauty's just trapped inside? No, of course not. They did it so that everybody could see and admire all of the beauty and all of the hard work that went into it. Guys, you are God's garden. He has gone to work shaping you, forming you, cleansing you, restoring you. He has gone to work creating in you a Christ-like character, not so that we can hide it behind the, ins- the walls of our-, our hearts, not so we can never let people see it, but so that that hard work can be appreciated by the people of this world when they see the good works, when they see our lives, when they see the kinds of things that we're doing, when they hear the kind of things that we speak, they might look and say, man, God has done something incredible in that person and give him praise. That's God's dream for our lives that we look like Christ Jesus, both inside and out. Now, sometimes when when we hear that passage, people have a question. It says these good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. Does that mean that God just has, like, specific things that we're supposed to do? Like, there's one specific job I'm supposed to work at, and I've been going down this interstate, and there's a car on the side of the road because I'm supposed to be the one person that stops for that car? Is Is that the specific good thing God's called me to? Here's the, has anybody ever asked questions like that? Ever wondered that? Yeah. Here's the definitive answer to that question. Maybe? You know, I, I, don't, I don't know if God has specific things that he calls every person to. What I do know, and what Scripture affirms again and again, is that there is a general good that God has called every single one of us to be a part of and to participate in. And oftentimes, as we've seen in Joseph's story, and we're going to see in the stories you're about to hear, he uses our problems to prepare us for those good works. So what does God's dream for good works look like in my life? And how do problems prepare me for them? Do you know that God has a dream, not just for your inner person and your character, he has a dream for your family, for who you are as a mom or as a dad. He really does care about that, and he has a dream for it, that you would be a mom or a dad that reflects the character of Christ, both inside and out. There's a guy named Rick Smith. If you've never heard that name, don't worry about it, because he's not famous. He's just a random dude with a blog, and I just happened to stumble across it one day. And I was reading Rick's story. He is a guy with a passion for fatherhood. Like, it's his goal and his dream to be the best dad he can possibly be, which is kind of crazy because Rick didn't have a good dad growing up. In fact, his dad left. He and his mom walked out on him at a fairly young age. And most of the memories that Rick does have are of an abusive alcoholic father. But without that problem, without that struggle, Rick says, I don't know if I would have the same passion and the same drive to be the great father that I am today. I want to give my son what I didn't have. 
And so Rick prays with his son, and he prays for his son. He uses every opportunity he can find to encourage his son, to build him up, to restore him, to teach him, to lead him in the ways of Christ. Rick is a phenomenal dad, and God used problems to shape him and form him for that good work. God cares about the kind of parent you are. And he has a dream that you would be a mom, that you would be a dad that reflects the character of Christ in what you do and in what you say. But God has a dream not just for parenthood. He has a dream for your marriage, too. You ever thought about that, that God cares about your specific individual marriage? He's got a dream for the kind of spouse you are, husband or wife, that you would be a man or a woman that reflects the character of Christ in what you say and what you do. There's a gal named Lori. Lori was married for 15 years, uh, and then she wasn't. Marriage fell apart. And there wasn't a definitive moment when that happened. It wasn't like there was a, a specific breaking point. There's no infidelity or anything. It was just 15 years of selfishness and criticism on both sides took its toll. And one day they woke up and said, why are we still married? Divorce is not a great thing. It's not something that God wants for anybody. But neither is it a problem outside of God's ability to use. Because through this problem, this lady started to reflect and Lori started to look at her life and see how selfishness had eaten away at her marriage and how criticism had just slowly eroded that trust and that relationship. And she learned so much through that problem about what it means to be a God-honoring woman, to be a God-honoring spouse. And she says, today, I'm in a much better position that should I meet somebody, I am determined to be a godly spouse and a godly woman for my man. God cares about your marriage. I've seen and heard stories of people who celebrate bankruptcy because it brought them closer together as a couple. I've heard stories of people that celebrated losing a job because it made them realize how they were prioritizing work over their spouse and their relationship. Problems are not good things. Oftentimes they hurt, but God oftentimes will use problems to wake us up and to prepare us for good works. But sometimes that good work is just being a Christ-like husband or wife. God cares about your inner life and your personal life. But he cares about your public life too. He cares about your career. He cares about being an employee or an employer that reflects the character of Christ in what you do. Are you sensing the theme here? There's a lady, her name was Denise Halcom. Denise was an OBGYN. She delivered hundreds of babies and she had two herself. One of them, the first pregnancy, no problems whatsoever. The second pregnancy, very different. She battled high blood pressure all throughout the third trimester. The baby's born breech, and her little girl spent the first three months of her life in the NICU. Now, Denise is a woman who was used to being in control. She was used to having a handle on things. She was used to solving problems, but this was the most helpless moment of her life because she just had to sit there and watch her little girl, and there was nothing she could do. And in that moment, she came to realize that so many of her patients have been in that exact scenario. And she learned compassion. She learned empathy. She learned to feel what they were feeling. She says, that changed everything about the way I treat my patients. I'm far more supportive. I'm far more understanding. I'm far more encouraging to my patients than I ever could have been before this. In short, Denise became a more Christ-like doctor through her problems. God cares about your work life. He cares about what kind of customer you are. He cares about what kind of neighbor you are. He cares about what kind of friend you are. Guys, God has a dream for our lives and is not confined to just who we are on the inside. It, it involves what we do. God's desire is that the character of Christ 
would be demonstrated in every facet of our lives. That's his dream, that we look like Jesus inside and out. And he oftentimes does it in one particular way. You ought to know his methods by now. What does he use to prepare us? Problems. They're not fun. I hate them. They stink. But in God's hands, they have a hidden potential to produce something good in us and through us. Maybe this morning you're, you're reflecting on your own problems and on your own struggles, and you're thinking, you know what? God has prepared me for something. Maybe I have a story to tell. Maybe I have a, a skill set that's been sharpened. Maybe I have experiences other people need to hear and benefit from. And if that's you, I would encourage you to consider taking a couple steps this morning because sometimes God prepares us for our next steps through our problems. Maybe your step this morning is to give back, to volunteer your time, your energies, your skill sets to the ministries of this church because there are people here that need to hear your story, need to hear your experiences, or could benefit from your skill set. Maybe there are kids or teenagers that need to know what you've been through. Maybe there are people at the food pantry that just need to know that you're there, that you care about them. Maybe you're great at organizing things. If you're curious about exploring what that step could look like for you, about volunteering and giving back time to the ministry of this body, I want you to take that connection card out of the back of the chair in front of you. And at the bottom, there's a step that says, give back. There's this little icon. It's a clock. It says ministry teams. Just fill that in. You can put an X through it, check it, however you feel. You can decorate it real nice with petals, make it a flower. It doesn't matter. But put your name on that. Turn it into the desk before you leave because we want to get in touch with you. And we want to help you take that step. Or maybe you're looking at your experience and you're thinking, you know what, there's a lot of things in the church that are great, but I don't really feel called to, to volunteer here. Instead, my neighborhood needs me. My neighbor lady across the street, she needs my help. Maybe I'm great at fixing stuff. Maybe, maybe I've been encouraged to, to go share my story with some of the kids in my neighborhood. Maybe there's a community organization that could use your time and your service. And, and your step is to go out and to care for this community. Maybe that's what God's calling you to, and that's on the connection card too. If you want to look at the left-hand side, it says go out. There's a little icon. It's got a couple tools and a cross-section like that. It says community care. We would encourage you, go out and love this city. Use how God has equipped you and prepared you to take care of others and spread the good news of Jesus. Whatever your step is this morning, I want to encourage you to take it. And don't think that, that your problems have gone to waste because God is not in the habit of wasting pain and problems. He uses them to shape us and prepare us for good works. And there are good works he's called each and every one of us to participate in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today and we thank you for caring so much about us that you even use our problems and our pain. Lord, they stink. I hate them. I wish we didn't live in a fallen world where we experience this junk, but we do. And the fact that you can take that and shape us and prepare us and change us into more Christ-like people is just a testament to your greatness. Lord, I pray for each of us in here today that we would be transformed inside and out to look like Christ, to love like him, to speak like him, to think like him, to serve like him, that people might take notice of our lives and they might want to hear the good news of Christ, that they might want to trust and believe in the God who changes us and the God who gives second chances and the God who even uses problems for our benefit and for our good. Father, we thank you for your love and for your patience and your kindness and all the other attributes that we could not possibly take time to mention. But Father, we just praise you for who you are, and it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.